Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. Uh, We're going to spend most of our time in verses 29 through 32 this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. These words are given to believers that have understood at this point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that they are who they are by the grace of God. That the grace of God began working for them before the foundation of the world. And Paul is now saying, how ought you live in light of your new life in Christ? Now that Jew and Gentile have been reconciled with one another in Christ. There's a new humanity in Christ. There's new men and women in Christ, born again. The dilemma of the Christian life is a battle now between satisfying the flesh. Paul calls it the body of death that keeps crying out, satisfy me. Look out for number one. This is what I want. So the Christian life is a battle between your body of death. It's not the real you. The old man is dead, but the new man is in this flesh that cries out to be satisfied selfishly. And it's in the battle with the Spirit who has given you new life in the new man and new woman. The battle between the flesh and the Spirit. They never go together. They're always at odds with one another. This flesh brings death. 
but the Spirit brings life. The flesh says, satisfy your every desire and urge selfishly right now. The Spirit says, let God be your satisfaction, your food, your drink, your refuge. You know, the Psalms can be so helpful for the believer in many ways. David's Psalms of repentance, like Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, can be help, helpful for the person convicted of sin, needing to know how to confess to God what a heart looks like that loves God, is broken over their sin, and is trusting in God's mercy. And some of David's psalms are helpful in that, what does it look like when you're really trusting God? On a good day, what did it look like when David was walking with the Spirit? Well, Psalm 16 is one of those psalms. If we're asking the question, what does it look like in the battle of the Christian life to live in the new man, looking to be satisfied by God and not through selfish desire in the flesh, Psalm 16 is an example of David in his life when he was thinking rightly. Here's what he says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, why does he take refuge in God? Because here's what he's saying to himself. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David says, I go to you, you're my refuge. Why do I go to you? Because I have no good apart from you. He's thinking rightly. We go to all sorts of different refuges when we think other things are better than God. And then he says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The believers who trust in you, they're the ones who have real life. But then he says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I'll not pour out or take their names on my lips. There's excellent ones that make their refuge God. But then there's those who sorrows are building upon each other. And they are those that run after other gods. And then I love this, verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You want to know what my drink is? The Lord. The Lord himself is my drink. That's what satisfies me. And then he says this, you hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. He believes God is good. And then look at, look at verse 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what does it look like when someone's walking in the spirit, remembering who they are? Well, I'm a human being. I want joy and I want pleasure. And a human being that is walking with the spirit, believing what is true, knows that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. If only we could always remember that, we would never walk in the flesh. We would always remember the flesh brings forth death. We would always remember who we are. The goal of this text, remember, from last week is to wake up in the morning and remember who you are. Paul isn't saying don't lie to one another and don't steal anymore and don't be angry anymore because that's what good people do and you might get to heaven if you do that. No, what he's saying is because you are new in Christ, Christian, Live like who you are. Remember who you are. Remember that the old man has been crucified and is dead. And so this morning we're going to pick up in verse 29. That's where we left off last week. These are the put-offs and the put-ons. The, the illustration here is you wouldn't want to be a new man in old clothes, right? Put on the proper clothing. And the clothing is the different way of life. So here's what he says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Wow, he has just spoken the hardest <laughs> put off, I think, there is. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Corrupting talk. Here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. In Matthew 12, 34, he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure of his, his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. For I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. 
meaning on judgment day, our words are going to come in as evidence, not the grounds of your salvation, but as evidence of the new birth in, in, in your life. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's humbling, isn't it? You've never said something that didn't come out of your heart. Which means when you speak those words that soon after you say, oh, I really didn't mean that, Jesus would say, well, that's actually not true. Now, we can, we can say something in a way that isn't clear and then speak more clearly. But when we say cutting words, when we say things that corrupt we can't say, I really didn't mean that. What we have to say is confess that sin and pray for my heart because all of those words come from out of the heart. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The privilege and the responsibility with speaking. God created everything with his words. Animals, creatures of instinct, communicate in an instinctual way. They don't talk. But you and I, we talk. The privilege to have words to use. And their great responsibility that comes with them. Jesus says, we'll give an account for every careless word. Every careless word. In James 3, 5, you're probably familiar with, with, with James 3, where he says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our other members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Then in verse 9 of James 3, he says, With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, he's speaking to believers, these things ought not be so. Corrupting talk. Talk that brings others down, that poisons other people. The Proverbs speaks a lot about the way we talk. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. To which we would all say, Amen. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So God hates arrogance. He hates the way of evil and by the way, he hates perverted speech. He hates it. 
That's why David says in Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And by the way, it is not a spiritual gift to stuff angry, bitter words that are in your heart and just not say them. That, that, that's not a spiritual gift because if you do that, they're coming out. It, it might not be in that moment. They will find their way out. I know this from experience. I've deceived myself. I thought, this really bothers me. It starts to anger me. I wouldn't call it bitterness. That sounds too sinful. It just bothers me, but I'm spiritually stuffing it. I'm, here's where I could say something, but I don't. Here's where I could say something, but I don't. And then all of a sudden, the 15th time, like a prosecuting attorney, every argument's been thought out. It comes out full on, angry, prosecuting, destroying whoever it is I'm upset with. So it's not just David prayed for a good heart. So when he asked for a guard over his mouth, he's, he, he knows he's praying that his heart be changed. It's not merely not saying what we really think. It's, Lord, change my heart to feel rightly towards the people that we're relating to. In Proverbs 16, 27, it says, a worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. Plots evil, that's what I was doing. And then it's like scorching fire as it comes out of my mouth. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisper separates close friends. So you can use your tongue in an aggressive, scorching way that corrupts, or you can just whisper a little bit. And that little sound that comes out of your mouth can destroy relationships that have been there for a long time. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings something behind it. It brings healing to relationships. Proverbs 22.10 says, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. And so as we think about, let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths for that to be true, we would need a new heart. And in fact, we have a new heart in Christ. So that when you find yourself talking that way, 
you can know you're not walking according to the spirit, but you're walking according to the flesh and the old man who is dead. The new man, according to Colossians, is already seated with Christ in heaven. That's who you are. You're, you're as, as good as you're right there with him. God did more in your new birth than he'll do on the day of glorification. You realize that, right? We talked about this last week. You went from someone who is spiritually dead to someone who is spiritually alive. The old is gone, the new is come. And at your glorification, what happens? This body of death dies and the new man is there. The work of the Spirit worked when you trusted in Christ. And so he says, don't let corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Now, you who have been given life by the Spirit, with your words, build up. Look at what he says. In but only such as is good for building up. That's what you do with your mouth. You have words of edification. Our speech that is a privilege to use is meant to bring life, not death. Create healing, not disease. And the reality is, is we often, even as believers, can put on the old man clothing and use our mouths in such a way that we will give an account for. You see, for the Christian, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're not going to pay for our sins on Judgment Day, but we'll re be rewarded for any work of grace, any way we used our mouth in a healing way, in a building up way with one another. And what does it look like to build one up. Look at what he says, as fits the occasion. So when we speak the words we speak, words that build up from God need to fit the occasion, which means wisdom needs to be alongside the content of what we say. I think it's helpful what uh, John MacArthur says here. He says, what we say should always be fitting for the situation so that it constructively contributes to all. Obviously, we should never unnecessarily mention things that might bring harm, discourage, or disappoint someone else. 
Some things, though they may be absolutely true and perfectly wholesome, are better left unsaid. Everyone admires the wisdom and virtue of those who speak less less often, but usually say something of benefit. And then he quotes Proverbs 25, 11, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. And Proverbs 15, 23 affirms that a man has joy in an apt answer in how delightful is a timely word as fits the occasion. In the new man, we're supposed to think before we speak. We're supposed to pray for wisdom. When's the right time and the right tone to deliver what we are going to say and why do I want to deliver it? Do I want to build the person up? Do I want to win an argument? Do I want to prove someone wrong for the sake of my own pride? All these things we would need to ask because look at what he says. But only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I had an opportunity in high school uh, to go way up north in Minnesota, almost to uh, the Canadian border, uh, to a place called Wilderness North. It was a a big chunk of land along this remote uh, lake, and they built these cabins up there, real primitive uh, cabins, and it was meant to be a place of ministry. And they would do this high school, uh, I don't know if you'd call it a camp, they called it Leadership Quest. There's a lot of time of reading and solitude. I remember we spent a lot of time in John seeing how Jesus was divine. But at the very beginning, they said something and they were just harped on it. They said, this week, essentially, there's going to be no corrupting talk. Not even joking that might seem good-hearted, but it's kind of at the expense of someone else. No sarcasm. It's going to be words that build up. And they were on it all week. And what I realized is we almost don't know how to talk if we don't talk in those ways. But it seemed almost otherworldly. Like I was in a place I had never been before. And we live in a culture that has become so hardened to sincere, warm, and tender-hearted encouragement and talk that when it's present people most certainly will become uncomfortable. I would argue if the Spirit took over our mouths, you would be uncomfortable. It would, the Spirit would speak in such a way 
and with such love towards one another that you would be tempted to crack a joke. It's like, ah, this feels awkward. I haven't been around a place where building up was allowed. Or maybe some cynical comment would be spoken. I'm an idealist. I'm a, or, I'm a realist. I mean, that's why I speak these words of sarcasm. I'm real. I don't like this talk, just building up. I think it's hard for us. We, we live in a culture that is not comfortable with kind words. Yet this is what we're called to. Our words are going to supposed to be gracious words. Colossians 4, 6, the parallel passage says, let your speech always be gracious. How often? Always be gracious. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. You need to have you have to be thinking if your words are going to be seasoned with salt, if they're going to be gracious words. Proverbs 16:21 says, "The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness." If we're to persuade people to Christ, if we're to persuade people to stay with their husbands and their wives and children to obey. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Proverbs 16.23 says, The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. What a privilege. Think of this. You're a new man and you're a new woman in Christ if you're a Christian. Look at the opportunity in front of us just with our words. What's stopping us from praying like David prays? To put a guard on my mouth, to be praying for wisdom and timely words. It is recorded of R.C. Chapman's home in Barnstable. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, he writes this. So this man, R.C. Chapman's home, here's what it said about it. There was a great cheerfulness at the table. Words of wisdom and grace were constantly heard. But no room was given for conversation to degenerate into frivolous talk. It was also a rule of the house that no one should speak ill of an absent person. And any infringement upon this rule called forth firm and gracious reproof. Do you hear that? Firm and gracious reproof. What if our homes could be homes that when people 
walked in them. They wanted to see sinless people, but they saw words, they heard words that built up, that had purpose. Many of you have probably heard of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions uh, that he had for his own life. He thought long and hard the principles by which he wanted to live. Some of the ones that stood out to me had to do with words, how he used his mouth and how he thought of other people. Number 14, resolution 14 is this. Resolve never to do anything out of revenge. Resolved never to do anything out of revenge. And then number 16 was this. Resolve never to speak evil of anyone so that it tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. So there could be a time to save people from some false teacher, for example, where people would need to be addressed about the motives of the false teacher that was around. So it's not that you have to speak good words about everybody at all times, except that scenario would be very rare that that would be the case that would be in front of us. And then in, in number 31, here's what he says. Listen to this. He, if he's going to do that, here's how he tests it. Resolve never to say anything at all against anybody, but when it is perfectly agreeable, so here's the test, perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of the love and of love to mankind, and agreeable to the lowest humility, and this sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I've said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try to strictly test by this resolution. I'm only saying this because of the highest degree of Christian honor, to the love of mankind, to the full understanding of my own brokenness and sinfulness. When I say those words that are the exception, that's how he would test it. In number 70, he says this, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. So did he just come up with these out of thin air? No, he read texts that were before us. Let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such that builds up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace. And then look at verse 30. I think this is important. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So that word grieve is lipeo. It means sorrow, pain, or distress. 
I don't want to get too far on a tangent here, but if a Jehovah's Witness was to come to your door and you were to get into a discussion about the divinity of Christ, you know, they would say Christ is not divine. Well, you could say, well, look at 1 Timothy 2.9, where it says the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. No, Jesus was deity. He is deity. And they might say, well, let me look at my translation. And then in their translation, what it's going to read is the fullness of the divine force. Instead of the fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Jesus. So a divine force was in Jesus, but deity wasn't in Jesus. And the Greek doesn't say that. That's just one of those, we're just going to do this in our translation to fit our theology. But another text you could take them to at that moment is this text. Because a divine force cannot be grieved. A personal God can be grieved. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And when we use our mouths, the Spirit came and the work he did is he brought life where there was death. He brought reconciliation between Jew and Gentile and between sinful man in God, in Christ. He brings about new life into us. And as we use our mouths to divide one another, the very one we are opposing is the spirit of unity. The Holy Spirit that has come to unite, which is the very purpose of all these verses, all the way to the Basically, the end of this book is now in this new life. Live lives of unity and love with God and one another and live holy lives. And so he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When were you sealed? When you were born again, you were sealed. When you came to faith in Christ, when he brought about life inside you, the Holy Spirit came inside you, and there's a seal. And that seal is evidence that on the day of redemption, you're a child of God because the Spirit of God doesn't live in someone who isn't a believer. And so his point is this, from beginning until the day of redemption to the end. That's the Spirit's work in your life. And if you follow those two, the sealing, the coming to Christ, and then the day of redemption, it always talks about the body collectively. When, when God is revealed 
in his saints, the day of redemption. And so we're doing more than ruining another believer's day when we use our mouths in a way, in a corrupting way. We're actually working against the very thing the Spirit of God is working in every believer. That's the, that's the point. So let's be a little critical. Let's ask some questions. What are the exceptions? Are we really just to talk this way? Because often what we do is we'll bring in assumptions to help us avoid the very hard thing the Spirit's calling us to do. Aren't we supposed to hate what God hates and call sin, sin boldly? Isn't, is, isn't that true? Aren't we supposed to boldly call out those who are wrong? And isn't that, in fact, loving? I mean, this sounds contrary to what we've said so far. Well, the Scripture actually helps us here. 2 Timothy 2.24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there it is. There, there's the correcting and what Paul wants Timothy to know is to correct with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do their will. See, Paul wants Timothy to be thinking about what the Spirit might do, what God might do in another's life. Or Galatians 6.1, if anyone was caught in any transgression, so they're caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. This is in the context of how they ought to live in light of their new birth. So are you saying we're never supposed to have a hard conversation? No, we're supposed to have hard conversations. Yes, we need to not shuffle things under the rug, but Paul has already told us in Ephesians how we're supposed to talk. We're supposed to speak the truth in love with the right purposes of our hearts. Jesus was willing to use some pretty tough language with the Pharisees. I went through and I read all these. I mean, I knew that. 
And I don't know if it gets any worse than Matthew 23. But you want to know what comes after he reveals their hearts? He says they're like whitewashed tombs. They're a brood of vipers. You want to know what he does? He weeps over Jerusalem. He laments over them. He was engaging their hearts in the parables that showed them that they were the hard-hearted. And they were the blind guides. All that to say, the Bible spends way more time calling us to the very thing in this text uh, and, and what we're going to look at next week, verse 31, where he says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice, but instead be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And that's the key. What's the fuel to treat one another in these ways? Is it not the gospel? Is it not waking up every morning and remembering who you are apart from the grace of God? Do you ever sin? Do you think you ever call it, cause anyone else problems? How do you want them to respond to you in light of that? Do you want grace from that? We are the people that have been shown grace by the holy God of the universe. Steadfast love that endures forever. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll repay. As for you, you bless those who curse you. And is that not the only appropriate thing in light of the gospel? The fact that we've been shown that mercy and we've been shown that grace that we wouldn't be slow to anger, that we wouldn't be willing and ready to forgive with tender hearts, not letting the sun go down on our anger. So let's wake up tomorrow morning and ask ourselves a question, who am I? Well, I'm new in Christ. I'm to be conformed in the image of Christ. Christ. 